Section 33 of Charles II by Osmondary. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 5 The Popish Terror and the Triumph of the Court. Part 4. As each fresh question came up for solution, or each emergency had to be met, or each personal quarrel to be fought out, all these persons joined or parted unguided by the king like birds wheeling in the air thus sunderland essex halifax and temple acted together to induce the king to dismiss lauderdale but when shaftesbury was brought in temple ceased to attend and at the same time quarrelled with halifax on the genuineness of the plot halifax and shaftesbury united over the plot were hopelessly at issue on the question of monmouth and exclusion bickerings arose between essex and shaftesbury over the raising of a troop of guards under monmouth's command halifax sunderland essex and temple advised dissolution and were opposed by shaftesbury russell and the rest of the council presently halifax sunderland and essex held sway while shaftesbury and temple remained away from their deliberations then sunderland and james joined forces against shaftesbury who was dismissed and who refused to come back when appealed to by sunderland himself on any terms except the divorce of charles and the exclusion of james halifax fell ill essex resigned his first commissionership of the treasury russell and several more of the country party asked charles's leave to resign then followed the reign of the chits sunderland lawrence hyde and godolphin but before long sunderland and louise de Kerouaille were seeking an alliance with shaftesbury against james and hyde louise and barillon supported monmouth and his friends and plotted for exclusion while charles maintained his brother's cause even nelly gwynne was brought into the turmoil in strange association with the grave essex and the explanation is that except upon personal points and upon the sanctity of the succession charles did not care in the least how matters went among his servants as for the future his kingly philosophy led him no farther than it led louis the fifteenth if i can be well so long as i live i care little what happens afterwards his ministers and counsellors might intrigue and quarrel as they pleased but he would do what he wanted provided it was also the easiest thing to do halifax and rearsby and danby in the tower complained of the unsteadiness of the king's temper that he hearkened to other counsels at a back door which made him wavering and slow to resolve while in other eyes this backdoor influence had its merits since it prevented him from being very long in ill hands the duchess of portsmouth would often make the king break his engagements to others and his ministers could not be safe under such uncertainties he would now and then with that self-deception which was becoming habitual go out of his way to assure individuals of his constancy do not trouble yourself he said to one i will stick by you and my old friends for if i do not i shall have nobody to stick by me and francis north related to his brother how while he was sitting upon the woolsack as the king thought pensive his majesty came and clapped himself down close by him and my lord said he 
be of good comfort i will never forsake my friends as my father did and rose up and went away without saying a word more one matter he speedily made clear the new council might take itself as seriously as it would but its members must give up the idea that his conduct was to be shaped either by their wishes or by his own promises when russell denounced lauderdale after the news of the bothwell brig rising sit down my lord he said this is no place for addresses it was in opposition to almost the whole council that he dissolved the parliament on july tenth he had previously prorogued it without asking their advice shaftesbury broke out into passionate exclamations of anger declaring that those who suggested the dissolution deserved to lose their heads and he was supported by russell gentlemen said charles coolly it is enough this temper was reflected in his daily habits little was done all day writes one of his suite at this very time but going a-fishing at night the duchess of portsmouth came in the morning i was with the king at mrs nell's charles's management of the popish fury was especially characteristic he knew that it must spend its strength before long and go out like the snuff of a candle that as burnet noted every execution like a new bleeding abated the fever that the nation was in men of all classes and professions had been done to death and in not a single case had a confession been forthcoming to whet the appetite for slaughter sober men were growing frankly ashamed i much fear wrote prideaux at the end of july sixteen seventy nine that this business at last will appear very foul and render us odious and contemptible through all europe charles waited quietly he knew that the judges especially scroggs the lord chief justice were at his beck and call and that acquittals would replace convictions whenever he chose to give the word the moment had come he thought when sir george wakeman the queen's physician was accused by oates scroggs had the hint and for the first time the indignant informer found his evidence subjected to judicial criticism wakeman was acquitted and his acquittal was the beginning of the end of the madness a remark of lord howard to scroggs put the case in the fewest possible words if oates and bedloe be not to be believed in all they say and if the queen be not a traitor our business is at an end among the dupes of the terror this action did indeed for the moment rouse the frenzy to a fiercer flame which was brought to white heat by the exposure of the meal-tub plot but charles allowed a heavy batch of priests to be hanged and the mob settled down again with shaftesbury and his friends the indignation against scroggs was extreme especially when he was formally visited by the portuguese ambassador who thanked him for saving the queen's servant but charles made him full amends for the baiting he endured he summoned him to windsor and was very extraordinarily favourable to him they have used me worse said charles and i am resolved we will stand and fall together the king's treatment of the lauderdale question illustrates his methods well lauderdale's misgovernment of scotland had produced the revolt of the western covenanters which was looked upon at least with sympathy by the english presbyterians and the evidence of this was shortly so complete as to make henry savile declare 
surely these accidents will at last cure my master of his infinite passion for his beautiful paramour of lauderdale but when lauderdale was formally attacked before the council by the hamilton party from scotland charles merely remarked that while many damned things had been objected against lauderdale nothing had been advanced detrimental to his own service in august sixteen seventy nine an event happened which showed that however coolly charles might take matters the prospect was menacing enough in the eyes of sober onlookers he was suddenly attacked with an illness which for a few days appeared likely to be fatal the very cause seems to bring him within touch last wednesday his majesty played at tennis and after that he had been in bed and rubbed he walked a long time by the waterside a chill and fever ensued in a moment the possibilities of the future came forcibly before men's minds the dread of the designs of shaftesbury and monmouth is seen in the almost hysterical exclamations which appear in the private letters of the time temple felt that anything which should happen to the king was the end of the world algernon sidney declared that there was no extremity of disorder to be imagined that the nation might not probably have fallen into good god wrote henry savile to his brother halifax what a change would such an accident make the very thought of it frights me out of my wits god bless you and deliver us all from such a damnable curse that all this was not without good ground is shown by sir robert peyton's confession to the privy council that if the king had died at windsor the monmouth party was prepared for a coup d'etat they had arranged to seize the tower dover castle and portsmouth and to arrest any who should offer to proclaim james under the stress of such anxieties halifax and essex with charles's assent secretly summoned james from brussels he reached windsor on september second and was received by the king with the greatest delight and with the most admirably feigned astonishment but scarcely had he arrived when charles rallied so far that it was thought well to quiet popular feeling by sending the duke out of the country again without delay this time however he was allowed to go to scotland instead of to brussels and even this modified exile was sweetened by the dismissal of monmouth also at the same time monmouth was removed from the captain-generalship conferred upon him when he went in lauderdale's place to suppress the whigs at bothwell brig james asked for a comprehensive pardon but charles remembered the uproar raised in the case of danby and refused it in spite of all forebodings and the loyalty of his subjects which was so great that it required the united physical efforts of the privy council and the gentlemen of the bedchamber to keep back the crowds who pressed into the room charles was soon on his feet again by september second he had exchanged water gruels and potions for mutton and partridges on which he feeds frequently and heartily and on the twenty eighth he scouted the opinion of his physician and declared himself able to go to the sweet air of newmarket he resumed indeed all his old habits for in a month or two he added a fresh mistress to his suite but he does not seem to have recovered his full health or spirits in december one of the verney family wrote the girls tells me the king looks so very ill as it grieved them to see him 
and came twice in but spoke to none but my lord feversham who came in with him they never saw man have more discontent and disorder in the looks than the king had the new elections had not altered the complexion of the parliament it should have met in october but charles felt himself strong enough to adjourn it until january sixteen eighty and meanwhile to remove shaftesbury from the presidentship of the council farther when monmouth the darling of the mob returned from holland without leave charles refused to see him dismissed him from his captaincy of the guard and all his remaining posts and insisted on his leaving london at once monmouth who in addition to other differences had a sordid quarrel with his uncle over a woman now openly espoused exclusion and the situation was more full of dangerous possibilities than ever to the ordinary onlooker it was a crazy time everywhere the immediate question was whether charles would permit the houses to meet in january the whig peers made a mistake in tactics when headed by rupert and shaftesbury they presented a petition to this effect the king replied that he would take it into consideration and that he wished every one was as careful for the peace of the nation as himself a day or two later he prorogued to november and issued a proclamation denouncing petitions as illegal he was thereupon bombarded with petitions from all over the country which had been prepared in accordance with instructions from shaftesbury's london office charles showed himself perfectly equal to the occasion his answers were much more effective than his proclamation i look on myself he said to the petitioners from london and westminster as the head of the government and mean to do what i think best for myself and my people you would not take it well i should meddle with your affairs and i desire you will not meddle with mine was all that the wiltshire deputation had to carry away while to the berkshire gentleman he said with that peculiar bonhomie which was his most powerful defence we will argue the matter over a cup of ale when we meet at windsor though i wonder my neighbours should meddle with my business it was quite clear that it was of no use to try to bully charles it was equally clear that the petitioners were not the country from every side came a flood of counter-addresses declaring confidence in the king's wisdom and abhorrence of the petitioners the nation was divided between petitioners and abhorrers the calculations of the whig leaders were completely upset by the decision shown by charles who now felt it safe to call back james to his side russell and three other principal whigs on the council hereupon asked the king's leave to retire with all my heart was the cruel reply he had become reconciled to monmouth but in april he deprived him of all false hopes by publishing the declaration already mentioned in which he denied in the most solemn manner that he had ever been married to lucy walters or to any woman but the queen End of section 33